Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my wisdom publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. We'll meet at seven. That will be a little ridiculous of a. Uh, yeah, and that, well, <laughs> that will that will happen tomorrow, and that's not going to change. <laughs> that I have no intention of addressing. I'm just I've given up. Um, okay. So, uh, Buddhist Dharma was uh, presented the first um, refined and I would say even uh, clinically useful or useful even today uh, perspective of the human personality. In the early Dharma was the first time we hear the idea, this is some 2500 years ago, that in very early stages of life before we become verbal, there's a development of personality that is uh, sticky, i.e. coherent and consistent over the human lifespan. In this stage, which is known as Nama Rupa at the time, you don't have to know that, it simply is a stage of development where we um, how we perceive ourselves and others, what we want from the world, and our basic ways we attend to life with our, with our minds. In other words, what's known as perception, how we perceive ourselves and perceive others. Intention, what we want from other people, what we want from uh, the world. And attention, how we focus our minds on issues and problems is set. And then in early, early, early uh, canonical texts, not just the Abhidhamma, which is one of the um, kind of the core commentaries of the Buddhist Dharma, but also uh, another famous early text called the Vasudhimaga, talk about uh, human beings tend to settle into uh, or can be found as articulating three basic types of um, or three basic overall tendencies. To be sure, in the early text it goes much deeper and more refined, but we see this idea of um, categorizing individuals in terms of 
Um, one is uh, raga. Raga means grasping or desirous. And uh, it's said in the text that this is the, and in the explanations of the text, it's the kind of person who walks into a gathering of people and immediately is drawn to all the things that they can get or something they're immediately focused on what some on pleasure um, they're desirous they are uh, easily fixated on specific people or objects they are uh, always staying very close and preoccupied to the um, to uh, anything that draws their attention. Uh, raga means essentially desirous. The second category is dosa, um, and that's aversive. That's the person who walks into the party and immediately sees everything that's wrong, that they don't like, and, you know, will tell you about it. Um, this is somebody who finds fault, is critical, seeks distance, uh, is never or rarely satisfied with others. And then the final group, which virtually none of, when you, Buddhist teachers get together, nobody identifies with this group, but uh, they're definitely uh, there in the canon. Moha, which is confused, somewhat plagued by both doubt, fear. These are people who are overwhelmed, fearful, and they generally tend to prefer fantasy over what's real. So they might go into a party, but they will immediately start to think of other parties or daydream of being back at home and not of coming to the party at all. And apparently... Uh, the, the Dharma in these early texts says that um, through practice, through wise, a wholesome spiritual action, which means being essentially uh, altruistic and kind, and also through uh, mindfulness, one can transform from one of these three categories into a fourth, which is sada which is somebody who's confident and filled with a sense of uh, self-faith, faith in oneself. This is somebody who sees the good in themselves and others, <clears throat> has the confidence to uh, seek things that make them happy, but not at the expense of others. They live a balanced life. And these are the people who are most likely to uh, pursue the Eightfold Path. So, I like to bring this up, not just because it's kind of in its own way interesting, but it almost eerily matches up to today's contemporary therapeutic insights, uh, by which I'm referring to attachment theory, which is without any question, the most important, um, presents the most important uh, contemporary insights into 
uh, human behavior. If you don't know what attachment theory is, I'm just going to review it very quickly. This is not going to be in any way uh, complete, but it's worthwhile to understand because it'll lead us into the practice we'll be talking about. So the insights of attachment theory go back to a clinical psychologist. Well, it wasn't, he was actually an interpersonal psychologist, John Bowlby, British, uh, Freudian at first in the 1950s, who did a lot of research with children who had been separated from their parents in the aftermath of World War II. And Bowlby's research, uh, as well as his familiarity with Conrad Lorenz, who was a famous primatologist and a man who studied the behavior of animals, Bowlby came to this stunning realization that essentially overturned all of uh, modern psychology. Up until Bowlby, there was this idea that the core drive of the human being is to discharge pleasure and to uh, essentially act out on primal drives of not only discharging pleasure, but aggressive drives. And of course we owe this original view to Freud. Bowlby, in his research, observing children, uh, observing, not in a creepy way, observing uh, clinically, and uh, as well as uh, his research into animal behaviors and realized that uh, Freud's, Freud's observations were off base. And that in fact the core drive of all human beings is to connect. To connect for caregiving, to connect for security, to connect for support. And uh, this observation is not only easily verifiable, but actually um, makes sense the more the brain has been uh, essentially studied from a neuro neurological perspective. We actually see how many core regions of the brain create pain and pleasure depending upon how well connected we are. We see the circuits that are dedicated to allowing us to connect. And in fact, we also can see from the development of the human frontal lobe, its sheer size is determined by the, the amount of social connections human beings have in their lifetime. And if you look at species, the more social they are, the bigger the frontal cortex. So, um, the basic underlying gist is that by 20 months of age, that's about a year and a half, we all attain basic attachment uh, settings or internal working models that do exactly the same things that the Dharma says that Nama Rupa does, and that these internal working models, based on our early exchanges with caregivers and other adults determine our sense of security in the world, our expectations of self and others, the way we perceive uh, the behavior of others, and um, as well as uh, the way we even use our attention 
um, has been shown to be determined in this, these early stages. Uh, essentially, if we want to have a secure base in life, which allows us to explore the world, to play, to express ourselves, to take risks, not foolish risks, but risks when there are opportunities to grow. If we want to be able to balance our lives in a skillful way between relationships and uh, uh, things we'd like to achieve, uh, if we'd like to have a good balance between taking care of others and taking care of self, we need to experience four types of interactions with adults when we're very, very young. So what are these four things we need to experience? The first is the infant needs to feel safe when she is with her mother or father or caregiver. Safe means that while you're with someone, you feel less prone to threats or dangers or bad things happening. So when you have proximity, you feel that you are less endangered. You feel actually uh, you can relax. And safe also means the reliability, which uh, an availability of a caregiver. Um, a child looks, infants look for patterns. The brain is a pattern-seeking uh, organ. Uh, we don't so much respond to anything as much as an ongoing pattern of behavior. So if the child can predict when a parent is emotionally available and receive a sense of attention, that child feels safe. So that's the first category we need to have. The second is we need to feel seen and understood, which means our emotional states, and I talked about this earlier, need to be in some way uh, grasped by another, need to be, um, need to be uh, not only witnessed and comprehended, but signaled back to us that they get how we feel. The child's emotional state is noted by the mother or father. In attachment parenting, the most important moment has been shown to be that event where the child expresses something. It could be frustration, it could be irritation, it could be joy, it could be shock. One of the universal emotions is expressed. Shock anger, fear, sadness, excitement or joy, disgust, so there's more than five words. There's uh, disgust. Uh, so but those are the basic ones. And uh, when those emotions, when an emotion is expressed, the caregiver stops, sees the emotion, and, and mirrors it back. If the child is scared, the parent goes, oh! Or if the child's excited, the parent might go, ah, or something that says, I get it. 
mirroring, it's in essence the parent is reproducing the child's emotional state back. And in mirroring a child, an infant, feels seen and understood. And then the parent does something that's really important. Um, it's called marking. The mother or father, after they mirror the emotion, then they smile and they say, I get it that you're angry, and I've just shown you an angry face too to show you that I get that you're angry, but I'm not angry. Your anger is not affecting my mental state. I'm capable of letting you know that I know you're angry, but I'm not angry. Do you get it? So if a child's sad, the parent might go, ooh, but then the parent might go, it's okay. And so that marking says, I get it. I understand. It's okay to be sad, but I'm not sad and I can help you. So that's the crucial exchange in being seen and understood. So, so far we have uh, safe and we have seen. The third is soothed, which means someone who will stay with us and if we're in distress, calm us down, make us, help us return to a state of less uh, activation. So that's what we talked about earlier, limbic co-regulation, when we down-regulate our activation, we become, um, uh, by being with someone, we become calmer. And the fourth category that we need, or the fourth type of connection we need, is delight and appreciation and encouragement. So that's a parent that uh, doesn't only soothe, doesn't only see what emotional state we're in, doesn't only make us feel safe, but also uh, appreciates our creativity, our efforts, and really um, gives us the encouragement to push forward in life. Um, and when all of those four categories or four types of interactions happen frequently enough, and they don't have to happen all the time. In fact, the great child psychologist Winnicott said, you know, he used the phrase, the good enough mother, which was basically meant to convey that a parent doesn't have to be uh, always available, always attuned, always encouraging. They just need to do it enough to set a pattern in the child's mind where the child feels safer, can, you know, knows when you know, it's likely to receive attention. So when that happens, a child grows up to be an adult with secure attachment. This is a, a child who in a playground, when the child is four, will interact with other children, won't stick around the parents, will go out and explore, and will feel confident to meet other children and to play, and will not be guarded and defensive, will not uh, run away. As an adult, this partner will be very honest in their relationships. They will partner with people who are trustworthy. They're confident to state their needs right up front. They don't have any problems setting boundaries because they can balance their life really well. They don't flee or have any problem with intimacy. 
They balance uh, relationships with peer support, so they not only have a, you know, a capability of maintaining relationships with significant others, but they also have good friendships. And these are people who feel really confident to go out and uh, express themselves in the world and seek uh, to uh, and, and, and set uh, achievable goals for themselves. And they tend to reward themselves for their endeavors. They don't tend to motivate themselves through self-punishing or self-judgment. They tend to be people who uh, feel good about their efforts. Now, if the child only sometimes gets attention and understanding and encouragement, um, but often doesn't, and can't, the child, the infant, can never determine when a parent's going to be available, or if the child is separated from a significant caregiver due to a divorce, um, and there's no, the, the parents don't, in this divorce, work out a way for the children to connect on a, on a reliable basis with both caregivers, then what happens is a child um, winds up very often with anxious or preoccupied in an adult attachment. That's somebody who um, is drawn to fantasy bonds with others. They have a they are attracted to people who are not emotionally available. They are very often uh, living in the expectation of abandonment because that's the thing they fear the most. Interestingly enough, people tend to expect the thing that they most dread, perhaps as a form of defense behavior. So anxious individuals, interestingly, unconsciously are drawn again and again and again to people who don't live in the same city, who have other partners, who are not emotionally available, who are avoidant, who are, uh, who are just incapable of creating a secure bond. Anxious people have a, a significant degree of core shame, a feeling, and I'm going to talk about this more tomorrow, feeling that there's something wrong or broken or unlovable in themselves. They tend to be, when they're dating, hypervigilant. Uh, because dating is the very arena, or when they're in relationship as well, they're hypervigilant. Uh, hypervigilant means uh, overly focused, overly guarded, overly, you know, uh, at a state of alert. Uh, the anxious person tends to over prioritize finding a relationship. Uh, they tend to believe that a relationship is the big thing that's missing, and yet unconsciously they sabotage them, their, the very solution by uh, not only by being overly uh, fixated, vigilant, at times even overly picky about who can meet their needs, but they choose again and again uh, people who aren't available for a relationship. The third type of uh, category is the dismissive or avoidant. This is the child who grows up with a parent who is incapable 
of mirroring the child because their emotional state is just not in sync. A parent who's constantly depressed, constantly anxious, constantly uh, distracted and stressed out by work. So the parent, the parent exhibits an emotion that's never in sync with the infant. And so the child does what's predictable. It gives up. Gives up on other people for getting its needs met. Becomes entirely self-reliant. If you see an avoidant child, they're very easy to spot. They'll go in a playground and they won't move towards... I should have said that the anxious child, by the way, will cling to the, the mother or father. They won't explore. They won't meet other kids like the secure. The avoidant child won't cling to the parents, won't go out and play with other kids. It'll just go off and find a toy or wander off and just try to be completely self-sufficient on its own. In adult life, these are people who prioritize their independence. They set extremely strict boundaries. They criticize virtually everyone they've been in a relationship as being too needy. They're the first that tell other people that they're illogical and irrational, that, they are, uh, that their emotions are too much. Uh, they tend to be extremely competitive over symbolic capital. The entire financial industry, in my opinion, is filled with emotionally avoidant men. Uh, the self-esteem failures are compensated by grandiosity. Whereas anxious people have core shame and tend towards, yes, anxiety. Uh, individuals with avoidant attachment tend towards monopolar depression and tend towards a sense of narcissistic self-importance. They tend to switch off their emotions. They tend to be self-numbing. They seek distance from others. They are um, extremely... Uh, Essentially, uh, the, ten, the type that tend to disappear the moment there's any intimacy expected in a relationship. So I'm sure you've all met somebody that meets this criteria. You're probably familiar. The final category is the fearful, avoidant, disorganized, the fearful, as we might refer to them. These are children who have been abused and uh, or were uh, suddenly catastrophically lost a parent to death uh, as something shocking, traumatic happened. Uh, these people have a painful ambivalence towards others. They generally are frightened of the people they're in relationship with. Their significant others, their attachment figures, they are actually in fear of. Whereas the anxious child... Um, Essentially, and the anxious individual fears abandonment. The avoidant fears being trapped with someone, fears, fears intimacy. The fearful individual just fears attachment, their partners to begin with. The fearful, the disorganized child was put in an impossible position. Everything in the human brain is set up to attach to a parent for safekeeping and care and love. But if that very person that you are wired to connect with is causing you suffering, is making your life more dangerous, is the very threat that you are... The child, every time the child feels distressed, it's, 
it's prime to go to the parent, but it's the parent that's causing the distress. What a horrific position to be in. So this individual is prone to um, what's called freeze or dissociation, checks out. They are easily overwhelmed. They don't have any coherent strategy for getting their needs met. They um, have a strong statistical tendencies towards uh, addiction and self-harm. And they very often wind up in relationships where, uh, that are manipulative, where partners are both untrustworthy and often where there's some degree of uh, occasional physical uh, violence. So here's the bad news before we go to the good. Uh, if you look at a 20-month-old child and then meet up with that child 30 years later, which has been done over and over and over and over again, there's been literally now hundreds of longitudinal studies in, May, in different countries, and they all show the same thing over and over and over again, which is you are like 75% likely to maintain the exact same attachment style you had at 20 months throughout the entire course of your life. Now, if you're one of the people that I never get to meet and work with who's secure, uh, that's great news. But for the other 50%, 50% of the, roughly 50%, is uh, insecure, falls into one of the other three categories of anxious, avoidant, or disorganized. That means there's a very likely chance that you will remain with the same anxious or emotionally self-numbing, avoidant, dismissive, or disorganized, fearful view of yourself, others, and that the patterns will remain through life. If you didn't get the connection between early Buddhist and attachment there, it's pretty straightforward. The type we call the desirous, uh, always clinging, is the anxious, preoccupied, who the individual who is always trying to get all their needs met from a thing, an object, that a person that never fulfills their needs. That's the very definition, pretty much, of the Buddhist category of raga. Dosa, the aversive person, is clearly the avoidant, almost exactly the same category, uh, 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 predilections. Moha, the delusional type, in Buddhism is clearly a reference to what we now call delusional. And sada, the confident person who can take risks, who balances their life, who is able to uh, act in a spiritual way, is clearly um, secure. The only significant difference between the early Buddhist approach and contemporary attachment theory is that the Buddha didn't think anybody was born <laughs> secure. He actually tended to believe that we all fall into one of the three insecure and that it was spiritual practice that uh, returns people to a state of confidence, a state of where they're able to connect. And in many ways I tend to think there's a lot to that view, even though 
you know, many, many countless clinical studies tend to show that there are such things as secure people. So what's worth knowing is that these patterns, just like the Buddha said, are said, set very, very early in life. 20 months of age before you develop narrative memory. You can, we can go into therapy all we want and talk about important events that we recall, but we will never be able to recall the most informative, influential events in our lives because they happen well before the left hippocampus, which allows us to do, have conscious memories, was formed. All of the early attachment events that happen between caregivers and infants are stored in uh, memory regions, right orbital frontal, that we can never consciously access. So no matter how much we try to talk about the early wounds and early abandonments, and while they're very often true, we never actually get to remember the earliest interpersonal events that had the greatest influence on our personality. Um, there's very little evidence that any form of interpretation-based therapy works in significantly changing people's behaviors. So what this means is that you can go into a, uh, an interpretation-based would be, for example, uh, you go into talk therapy, you're with someone who's very, very skilled and can point out patterns, and it's helpful in that it me makes you feel less alone, you feel more, your experience is normalized, you're less, um, you feel less uh, over, uh, uh, unique in the, the issues that are faced, but, and you also feel that it's kind of a, an understanding why, to a certain degree, we have the behaviors that we have. So, but still, the interpretations will not change the way we act. So, for example, uh, in counseling, which I've been doing now for a good, period, good chunk of time, I've worked with hundreds, and I've found that even though, uh, for example, when working with um, uh, people with anxious attachment who know fully well, they come in to counseling knowing fully well their predilection towards be gravitating towards uh, uh, people who are emotionally unavailable. They can know it, they can understand exactly who the most likely caregiver that wasn't available. They can, uh, they can have a real sense of even the kinds of things because we give them tools, of course, to understand how to choose and select secure partners. But still knowing all that, the internal working model that governs the attraction keeps guiding them back to emotionally unavailable people. And they continue for a significant period of time to seek love in the same disastrous relationships over and over and over again. Now that doesn't mean they're trapped because fortunately there are tools that can alleviate these internal working models, what the Buddha called Nama Rupa, these early shaped perceptions or core personalities. Originally the 
in attachment therapy, the thought was that it would be the therapist themselves that would create this secure experience. The therapist would give the, the client, the person they're working with, the things that they, they didn't get reliably in childhood. So the, they would give to the anxious or avoidant or disorganized, uh, fearful client, they would give that person safety, they'd stay attentive, they give that person, um, they make that person feel seen and understood. They make that person feel soothed when they were in distress. And they encourage that person to persevere and would acknowledge that person's creativity and efforts. So in other words, the, the idea was that the therapist would become the ideal parent. And keep, keep in mind that phrase, the ideal parent. The idea was the therapist would become an ideal parent. And in that interaction between the insecure individual and the therapist, that that um, attachment style that was set early on in life would be shifted in that relationship. Well, that is actually a really promising idea, but there's only one problem. Can anybody guess what that problem is? It's too late. No, nope. I like a pessimist, but no. Pessimist close to my heart, but no, it's not too late. People throughout life, 25% throughout life, the brain is neuroplastic, people can change. So. Well, the attachment patterns have been shown by Alan Shore, uh, who's one of the most famous neuropsychologists to be stored in the right hemisphere, but no, it has, it's not due to the bilateral brain. But good, good guess? You're paying them, or it's a client-provider relationship? Pretty close, pretty close. Yeah. Bingo. Between the, these two, that's it. Essentially, you're, if you're lucky, you're in therapy one hour a week, but you spent <laughs> 16 years of the most informative, influential, you know, in, where your brain was engraved, every, you know, all the countless hundreds of thousands of hours interacting with caregivers. Now, if they did a good job, if they were available, if they were, if they can soothe you, then they, then there's nothing you have to worry about. But if there was an unreliable pattern of attention in those first 20 months, that child had literally tens of thousands of hours. And in those hours, it couldn't determine a pattern of when it was going to get reliable attention or it felt uh, a lack of um, um, understanding. It felt never mirrored uh, or very infrequently mirrored. And so the most formative years when all the neuronal connections and the neurons are being built in the brain, there's nothing like the, like the first uh, 20 months of life where the brain is producing hundreds of millions of neurons literally every week, I think it is, and we stop doing that after that age. And those interactions are forming 
our expectations and our, the way we view ourselves and we view others. So by the time you're 34 and you're in therapy and you found the greatest therapist who's really attuned to you and you feel really safe with them, but you're getting them one hour a week. And by that point, think of the brain like a, a ski slope. So <laughs> there's these trails that have been set for 34 years that determine where people ski down it. And you're going to try to ski down against those grooves that have been, or trails. And you're going to just try to go into these snow banks where there's no grooves. It's fucking hard. And the interactions with the therapist aren't enough. Now, Mary Main, the great attachment researcher, uh, proposed that uh, if there was a, a tune therapist and if there was also uh, the anxious or avoidant or disorganized individual made sure, made damn sure they wound up in a relationship with somebody who was secure, being in a relationship with somebody who was emotionally available, attentive, who uh, prioritized the relationship, who wasn't dismissive of their emotions, then uh, the the 10 to 12 years of therapy where you need to make a dent in an attachment style would go down to about seven years. So seven years, that's a five year, we're, we're, we're cutting into it, right? That's pretty good. But suppose, suppose you wanted to significantly change your attachment style in six months. Does that sound impossible? Well, actually, it turns out it's not. A team of psychologists uh, is, is led by Daniel P. Brown and Sam Elliott at Harvard Medical School uh, developed a tool which allows people to create an internal working model of security so they actually get to know the secure experience internally. Um, interestingly enough, the lead psychologist, who's absolutely famous in the world of psychology, he runs a clinic for people with complex PTSD. He's renowned, and he also happens to be a Buddhist practitioner. And he one day had this uh, great realization that one thing that nobody had explored was what if every day somebody could have a secure experience in their life? And what if we could do that in meditation. What if we could take advantage of the mind's capability of visualizing and creating internally an ideal parent figure or an ideal uh, figure? That way we could actually have that experience that we only get one hour a week and therapy, we could actually get it every day. And we could uh, exponentially increase the recovery and the healing of emotional wounds. And we could actually significantly allow people to unconsciously know what it feels like to be secure. And when they know what it feels like to be secure, not only do they make smarter choices when it comes to picking partners for romantic 
their romantic life because when you know what it feels like to be secure, you don't chase after excitement anymore. Excitement is not a thing to look for in a relationship. Excitement is okay, but excitement is the experience that a child that is anxious, who didn't get reliable love experience when she or he was with uh, the parent who's finally paying attention. The child who's secure, who has a secure attachment with a caregiver, felt safe, felt seen, felt relaxed, felt confident. So if you can visualize a secure figure who is has all those four categories we talked about, it makes you feel safe, makes you feel seen, makes you feel soothed, and or can soothe you and is encouraging, then you get a felt sense of the very state that not only allows us to choose people who will be reliable, but it also is the sense that we need to explore the world and speak up for ourselves and state our needs and pursue our goals and to essentially act on our best, highest self. It actually has been shown because they've actually done clinical research at Harvard using this technique. And they've shown that in as little as six months to under two years, significant changes, not only in attachment, but also they did it with people with complex PTSD and they saw a significant reduction in pathological symptomology in terms of uh, obsessive ideations, suicidal ideation, self-harm. So, in short, it works. The good news is that this is very similar to Buddhist practice as well. If you look at uh, one of the Buddha's ten daily recollections was Devanusati, recollecting some figure or being that has been angelic. And if you couldn't, in Buddhist practice, remember anyone, you would create an angel or an angelic being from your imagination. didn't matter in the Dharma whether you were visualizing something that didn't exist or someone who had existed. Likewise, these four categories uh, that create security, um, being safe, seen, soothed, and appreciated are very, very similar to the Brahma Viharas, which are the divine abodes, which are states of greeting others with kindness, compassion, appreciation, care. So what Daniel Brown did in this ideal parent practice is simply take Buddhist meditations and use them to help healing people in therapy. And he would see, he developed a whole script where simply he would guide people to visualize a healing figure that would help them address early internal working models that cause us suffering in life. So with your indulgence, I am going to lead you now through an ideal parent figure meditation based on their work.
So in this meditation, just find the most comfortable seat you can and don't worry about <coughs> posture or anything. Just allow yourself just to relax. This is an entirely a visualization practice. This is not about um, the breath. This is about using our imagination. So, with our eyes closed, let's just take our normal three breaths just to relax. So, take a full, complete in-breath, and if you'd like, lift your shoulders up, just hold them up, and then relax, drop your shoulders, let me breathe out, and pull the shoulders back to open up the chest. <coughs> When you open up the chest, it actually sets the core vagal vagus nerve cluster and tells your brain you're safe. So, second complete in-breath, and either pull in or push out your belly, whatever you feel is appropriate. Just do something and then breathe out, relax, soften the belly. Create a nice, soft, relaxed belly to breathe into. And then... For the third breath, so squinching the muscles in the face tight. You know, squinching the eyes, the forehead, the nose, ugly pinched face, then breathing out and softening. And let's just take one last fourth complete in-breath and just tighten everything. Squinch your toes, your knees, buttocks, fists, legs, arms, everything tight. And then breathe out. And with the out-breath, just imagine your out-breath taking with it all the stress it can, clearing out, if allowing us to find a really useful state. Now I'd like you to use the power of your mind, which is by far and away the most powerful tool in the known universe which is capable of visualizing and doing anything it wants. I'd like you to travel back in time. And we're going to go back into one of the earliest memories you can confidently bring up of a time in your life when you were young and you wanted to feel someone present, an adult, who would stop and really pay attention and really sit with you or, or be with you and help you understand what was going on. Somebody who would make you feel safe, someone who would help 
soothe any fear. any confusion, any doubt, they would be willing to sit with you as long as it took without any impatience and they would listen. And most of all they wouldn't try to change the way you felt as much as they would just give you that receptive, caring, empathetic, Hopefully the experience we got this afternoon in our group share. So I'd like you, without any conscious overriding, just allow your imagination to start to visualize any adult figure who would be ideal for these needs. So if you're six, who knows, they might be in their 30s or 40s or they might be a grandparent's age. And don't steer it. Don't try to just allow your imagination to create someone. And this could be partially based on people you know. Try to involve your imagination as well. Keep, create a figure in your mind. Have a sense of where you are. Are you in a childhood house? Or perhaps you're outside looking one individual I worked with imagined walking up a flight of stairs into the second floor of their house, which was scary for them. Many people often visualize their bedroom or living room from childhood. I very often, when I do this practice, see the living room where I grew up. And would this ideal figure be sitting with you? Would they be standing? Would they be facing you? Or would they perhaps be looking in the same direction with you? If you can't, in your mind, see an ideal figure, a face, or get even a sense of what they might look like, how they might be dressed, just see if you can feel what it would be like to be with someone at this age when you were vulnerable, when you were seeking care, but couldn't find it reliably. What would it be like to actually have everything you wanted? 
this ideal figure, this deva in Buddhist language is really dedicated to you and doesn't want to go anywhere. He's willing to stay with you as long as it takes. And if there's sadness or anger or confusion, they see that and they don't have any problem with whatever emotion or state you felt. This figure, there's absolutely nothing missing, nothing broken, nothing wrong about you. If you do get even a glimmer of a sense of what this might be like, see if you can find any area of your body which expresses that state of security. For me, it's very often, many people it's in the chest, the feeling of the chest relaxing. Some people feel their throat less uh, tight. For me, it's almost invariably the belly, the abdomen. It's most important to find the somatic embodied signal that lets you know what it feels like to be in the presence of someone who makes you feel safe, seen, soothed, appreciated. Even the slightest glimmer of ease or a slight tonal shift
if you'd like, if you have a sense of what another ideal figure might be like. Many people do ideal parents where they create a sense of two secure figures. You don't have to, but if another figure suggests itself, a complementary figure, The more you can, if possible, visualize a face or at least the felt sense of being with an ideal, caring figure. That's where the emotional mind tends to be most responsive. So, at this time, just gently let go of any image or visual that you've managed to conjure, but see if you can keep with you the felt sense in the body. And whenever you're ready, you can open your eyes. So I uh, grew up uh, with a mother who was fairly capable of creating a secure bond. She was very much a workaholic, but every night, reliably at the exact same time, she'd sit with my sister and then with me and would check in with us, really pay attention to what we were feeling. She was very encouraging she'd read to us, and it was a really set pattern. So in uh, interactions, relationships with women, I've been able to be very, um, I've been 
you know, able fairly to be trusting and to balance my life and to choose a pretty good partner. <laughs> yeah. Didn't want to. But um, my father and I was an entirely different story. He was a, at times, a very loving, uh, funny uh, painter, uh, abstract painter, uh, uh, who had a great sense of humor and at the same time was a violent, dysregulated drunk where uh, when my mother was pregnant with me was in the hospital in an induced coma from a bar fight, was uh, very often on the run from, you know, police would come literally due to some interaction he had in a bar. Um, and so um, very early on, the only, I had an extremely disorganized attachment with men. It was very difficult for me to trust I was often fearful even of friends and would very often choose friends who were, would reproduce the same kind of uh, insanity and hung out with a lot of, you know, that's how I, I hung out with a lot of, you know, dysregulated punk. They weren't like crusty punks because it was before crusty punks, kind of like proto-crusty punks. You know, uh... And a lot of uh, drug use, and it took a long time. I mean, I was lucky. I found a really compassionate, kind uh, uh, professor in school who really took me under his wing and who was safe and saw something in me, and then went through years of Buddhist therapy with two different figures who created uh, safe interaction but still even after all that and even after um, uh, I mean so much uh, therapy still when I do this practice I can effortlessly visualize an ideal uh, mother figure but an ideal father figure oh boy it's just so foreign from what I experienced, that trying to visual, I can get a sense, but the, the, I, it's so hard to visualize being with an older male figure that is in any way kind of compassionate and caring. So that's a long-winded way of saying this practice is one that we have to do on a regular basis, but it does work. It significantly changes the way we not only um, uh, feel about ourselves and others, but all the choices we make and uh, how we uh, live in the world. So I thank you for listening.
suggested daily reflections. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why they are so useful. Um, and I'll read brief versions of each. And uh, we'll talk about it from both a perspective of psychology and uh, also a kind of existential justification for the practice as well. So, um, I was, uh, one of the recurring themes from this retreat has been just how we are uh, pack animals, social beings, how deeply that is embedded in our species. And uh, one of the neural mechanisms that uh, encourage us to maintain our tribal connections, to act altruistically, to bond with each other, to, uh, to essentially uh, not act in selfish ways, is that we have, uh, in, when we're healthy, we have what's called appropriate guilt. Appropriate guilt essentially addresses specific actions we've taken that are essentially prioritize our well-being over everyone else and are essentially uh, uh, in some way, if other people knew about it, would jeopardize our, our standing in a community. So when we, in other words, uh, we act uh, in a manner that um, causes uh, harm to others or unthinkingly uh, uh, wounds somebody. There's a core circuit in the brain um, that is that Lieberman points to, again, and others as the interior cingulate that creates, you know, that feeling of, ugh, uh, that feeling of uh, almost a sense of disgust. In fact, um, uh, uh, Sapolsky, a great uh, behavioral psychologist, I'm a big fan of his, and he talks about how the core emotion of disgust sometime about 50,000, 100,000 years ago, hard to pinpoint, but at some point when they were doling out uh, responsibilities in the brain uh, for managing our social lives, the brain committee said, uh, okay, so the amygdala, you're handling all the fear and all of the lust and all of the aggression. So who's going to handle moral guilt? And they all looked around and they were like, yeah. And they finally pointed to the interior cingulate and the insula, which creates feelings of disgust. And they said, that's your job. So the insula, which creates especially that feeling of in tandem with the, uh, has a circuit directly to the anterior cingulate cortex. And when we do something that is um, embarrassing or harms our standing, there's this feeling of literally disgust that's triggered. And that's what lies at the core, the heart of guilt, is this feeling of 
the emotion of disgust, which originally started as a way to literally expel food or when you know you saw something that was decaying or rotten to have you step away. So now in our species, disgust, because it had very little, <laughs> it wasn't being used a lot, the brain decided, okay, well, we're going to give to you uh, disgust, uh, moral transgression. You're going to handle that. And so uh, over time, of course, disgust uh, has been a lot of, has been pretty greedy, and it doesn't only attach itself to actual actions that we have done that cause harm uh, over time because we uh, have frontal lobes disgust has also developed uh, a tendency to activate in what's called core shame so core shame is different than appropriate guilt Appropriate guilt is over a specific action. An individual is appropriate guilt when they harm someone, they feel bad, they, it encourages them to make some form of acknowledgement and some form of de- uh, decision not to repeat the behavior, and that's it. Core shame, on the other hand, has nothing to do with an action. It's a sense that one's self, one's core identity is flawed that there's something inherently wrong with me, that I am unlovable, broken, damaged. And core shame uh, is a failure to internalize a sense of belonging. It starts, obviously, early on in life, when a child, either in a family system or very frequently not in a family system, but in interactions with peer groups in schools, uh, grade school and whatnot, or... Uh, and other interactions with peers feels ostracized, left out, not uh, included. And so the infant develops this sense, or this child develops a sense of there's something wrong with me. I don't know what it is. It's not something I can remember doing. They must see in me something that's just completely... Uh, unworthy. So the disgust emotion is now not triggered by um, an action. It's actually triggered whenever the child thinks about itself, sees itself in the mirror, uh, thinks about itself in in relation to other children. Uh, Even its name is mentioned So some developmental psychologists suggest that the roots of core shame start very, very young. In the first year of life, most children get a really healthy amount of attunement and care. But there's this time around age two when children start being capable of uh, uh, exploration and they also get in a lot of trouble. They can wander into areas that are dangerous. They can, uh, they have very, they have no impulse control, of course. Impulse control really isn't fully wired until we're literally in our 20s. So when you're two, you've got none. And so uh, the parent 
transitions from this bond that's entirely nonverbal in the first 18 months or first 12 to 18 months and then their interactions start being mediated by shouting stop no don't do that uh, stay well maybe that's what you say to dogs but anyway uh, <laughs> you get the idea they uh, injunctions and a developmental psychologist counted and said that the average child uh, hears the average two-year-old starts hearing the word no and don't 200 times a day and what that don't stop that that injunction does is it startles the child from exploration mode to a sudden state of freeze where they contract and they tense their body and sometimes uh, in fact quite often children begin to link their name with that sudden freeze that sudden contraction that sudden halt so if there's not a great amount of repair that's constantly being done by these harried parents who, and teachers, the child can begin to, again, associate its core being itself with something that is flawed, damaged, incomplete, uh, even disgusting. The, when somebody has a... Uh, develops a positive sense of self. It doesn't mean they have a fixed identity of who they are, but they, when they think of themselves, it conjures up good feelings. It actually, uh, as um, a lot of research done in developmental psychology shows, it's an organizing principle that allows us to make sense of our life. It allows us to when we have a sense of resilience, a sense of strength, a sense of agency, a sense that we are good, that we're not damaged, flawed, incomplete, lacking, unlovable, then we not only have a sense of agency in the world where we can uh, pursue goals and feel confident meeting others, but when you have this sense of good feelings when you think about yourself, um, it has a really a positive outcome in one's uh, resilience. One's capable of bouncing back from setbacks, uh, rejections. The more people have a positive sense of self, the, the shorter the duration of grieving abandonments. So they're still grieving, for sure, but there's actually a sense of resilience that is notable. When somebody doesn't have a um, positive feeling when they think about themselves, and that's called their self-concept or their self-representation, the image you hold of yourself in your mind, if it creates negative feelings or negative emotions, um, these people are easily overwhelmed. They... Um, don't have the ability to bounce back from setbacks particularly well. They tend more towards isolating uh, auto-regulation of their emotions rather than bonding and processing emotions fully. Uh, they tend to view themselves as very fragile and they are avoidant of taking risks. 
And the greatest marker is what's called um, imposter syndrome, which is the sense that uh, even though one is accomplished and has worked in one's job or has developed skills, there's this constant sense that if I don't, if I don't, if I'm not on top of it, if I if I have an off day or if I if I don't uh, live up, then people will see right through me, and they'll they'll spot that unlovable part of myself, and I'll be fired or I'll be abandoned or the world will drop me. So in short, <coughs> negative self regard is a failure, it's a developmental failure to link one's self-representation. The image of yourself in a mirror, the visual you hold of yourself when you think about yourself, the, re- the reaction you have when somebody says your name, the, the feeling you get when a- any representation of yourself comes to mind. If you fail to link that up with a positive feeling in your body, then from that lack of positive feeling, from those negative feelings, uh, certain beliefs flow. Uh, Brown and Elliot suggest that um, when people fail to make that developmental linkage between self-representation and positive feelings, if instead they feel nothing when they see themselves or when they look in the mirror, then there's a sense that there's something completely lacking and there's this ongoing feeling that I'm incomplete, I have to constantly uh, try to accomplish more because when I think of myself, I don't have any somatic ease or comfort. And if somebody feels outright disgust, then there are proclivities towards depression and anxiety disorders. So... In their work, they suggest a Buddhist practice um, which is essentially corresponds to the Buddha's daily reflection known as Sila Nusati, which is a visualization of ourselves enacting our highest, most esteemable actions, goals, things that we hold and we cherish that make us feel good about ourselves. And the Buddha called Sila Nusati um, one of the ten recollections that he recommended doing uh, every day. And um, it's a really useful tool in addressing especially that feeling of oneself being flawed or or, uh, in some way Um, the sense of inadequacy. So, um, with your permission, I'm just going to lead you through a version of this. This is known as the self-esteem protocol so I'm giving you another protocol. You had the ideal parent protocol, which is based on Deva Nusati, another one of the ten recollections. And this is Sila Nusati, which is recollections of one's 
integrity, one's virtue, one's skills. So closing the eyes and I'd like you to visualize a scene completely using either your imagination or actually recalling some, well, let's start with an imaginary scene first, and then if we can go to one that's actual, we'll do that second. So visualize a scene in which you're having a positive impact on someone else's life. This scene should reflect your deepest values, either caring or empathetic or someone who's really, really attentive, someone who's really helpful. Whatever qualities in others you admire and you hold in high regard, especially those qualities associated with altruistic endeavor. Just visualize yourself acting in such a manner. See if you can visualize someone's expression in relation to this act. Appreciation, acknowledgement. Again, visualizing any act that just by its very nature in the way that it helps and establishes yourself as a caring, kind individual. And see if you can connect with the sensations in your chest, your throat, or your face, somewhere in the body, if we do this practice frequently enough, there becomes a clear marker of esteem, a sense of worthiness, very often a sense of openness and energy flowing up in the chest. There might be a sense of physical ease, a sense of one's shoulders relaxing or one's facial muscles softening, micro muscles around the eyes.
So just connecting with the felt sense of positive self-regard, a sense of being worthy. In this protocol, it's encouraged to see if you can enhance the sensations of ease. So if you feel a sudden lightness somewhere in the muscles or ease or comfort or whatever sensation you feel that's positive, see if you can breathe and using the mind's ability to influence the body, spread that ease using the out-breath, with each out-breath, spread uh, the feeling associated with one's integrity. So if it's in the chest, see if you can, with each out-breath, spread it up through the neck, to the side of the, to the arms, down to the abdomen. In any direction you feel it naturally will flow. And now let's just bring to mind either an actual memory of being beneficial to someone, coming to someone's side when they were in distress or taking time to be with someone who was not in a positive state, a family member, a friend, just an animal, not just an animal, an animal, or any being that we've taken care of, visualize them, and connect with, again, in seeing their face acknowledging you. Feeling a sense of ease, warmth, comfort in the body. And once again, see if you can enhance this sensation breathing into it and then with the out-breath seeing if you can 
spread it to another area of the body that's adjacent. And when you're ready, you can let go of this image and open your eyes. So as a protocol, it's suggested doing that once a day, if only for a brief duration, 30 seconds, a minute. Uh, but the goal is if you do these practices, the ideal parent, the esteem building, the, the secure bubble, uh, over time, as a sh- you, know, you do it short, briefly, every day, they have really significant outcomes. Um, uh, and it doesn't take an exceptionally long duration for them to start having noticeable effects on one's sense of resilience, uh, a diminution of one's uh, imposter syndrome, one's uh, tendencies to uh, constantly manage the opinions of overly try to manage the opinions of others or look good to others through workaholism and whatnot. We have to have a robust, positive uh, uh, sense of self-regard to let go of the, what we called managers earlier today. So um, the second is another one of the Buddha's suggested recollections. And this is more about developing a sense of purpose or meaning in one's life. The Buddha's path was um, uh, motivated by an encounter with the fragility of human life, especially um, the encounter with death and the realization that there's in life a very, very short time without any guarantees. The Buddha later in a sutta said, mindfulness of one's death when practiced is absolutely vital for it's a foundation of liberation and everyone should develop it. And on another sutta he talked about, it should be done, he literally has a tendency to sort of set unrealistic targets. In the sutta, he says, with every breath. But then he says a lot of other things. With every breath, you should be mindful, diligent, heedful of your actions. So he also says, with every breath, you should be mindful of your mortality. Um, Well, that's a bit extreme. Um, It is very, very important. The great Abraham Maslow, the... uh, American existential psychologist who came up with the hierarchy of needs. You know that, I don't know if you've ever seen that famous triangle where 
at the bottom are the basic needs of uh, food, shelter, and then you move up to um, connection and belonging, and then at the very top is self-actualization, which comes through from um, uh, things like creativity, spontaneity, uh, uh, empathy, and uh, Maslow said that the only way to move up that hierarchy to one's highest self-actualization is a confrontation with one's mortality or the fragility of life in some really meaningful way. That it's just not in general that people naturally tend to have the capability to reflect on their own life and what gives it value unless there's also some impetus and the impetus is understanding our fragility and how little guarantees we have. Um, Heidegger, that good old Nazi of a guy, uh, <laughs> by what he was uh, he benefited from the Nazi party, but he was, a, he was an important uh, existential philosopher as well. And um, uh, one of the most important philosophers of the 20th century. And he maintained in, uh, was it being in nothingness? What is time and being in time, right? Being in time, thank you. Yeah, and being in time, which I cannot claim to have read because every attempt I've made has ended in the second or third page, it's impenetrable to me. But I have read secondary texts that go over it, and um, he talks about attending to a state of care about one's life when one. Uh, is jostled out of the business as usual, the kind of daily stressors that we get caught up in, worrying about whether projects will get done on time, worrying about what other people in a workplace will think about us, worrying about, of course, financial uh, matters and all that um, tends to become all-encompassing and distracts us for extended uh, Periods from awareness of uh, paying attention to those qualities, actions, and um, uh, what makes our lives feel meaningful, in short. Um, in one suit of the Buddha said, while I was rich and surrounded with beautiful objects and people, I lived in ignorance, oblivious to the fact that I would die, and therefore all the choices I made were unwholesome. So there's this direct correlation between uh, awareness of one's mortality and the ability to make wise, informed choices uh, Heidegger also said, and I think this is true, and some people have, when they hear this, they tend to debate it, but Heidegger maintained that it's death that actually gives um, each choice and each, and each of our lives its actual meaning. That if life went on forever, that none of our actions would have any, um, because that none of the actions would have any consequences 
it's that life would have, in essence, no meaning. It would just be this unending thing that would have no weight to it. And that it's our mortality that gives each choice we make its value. And in any event, we don't, none of us have any other choice, but we're going to grow old and eventually perish. So it's actually an important reflection. In the, up until the 19th century, in the proliferation of hospitals, death was pretty much everywhere in all cultures. Most people died at home of diseases where there where the decaying body would be visible. And uh, the omnipresence of death required that it be an ongoing reflection that people would have. And if that wasn't enough, one of the most popular themes in art, uh, memento mori, literally means uh, remembering one's death. And it was these wonderfully beautiful paintings of a skull with like some... Uh, something that represents wealth, like a watch or a clock or something. And uh, it meant, uh, as a piece of art, to say, don't get caught up in, in worrying about money and wealth and symbolic capital, because this is what's going to happen, the skull. So in our cultures, of course, because of the advent of hospitals and um, the, the systemic removal of bodies from any visible uh, space, uh, death is now hidden, and it becomes very possible to live most days without any acquaintance and to, with um, how not only drastic and fragile we are, but our real lack of guarantees. And as a result, we don't reflect on death, as in memento mori, we fear it. And that's a big, very bad shift, to move from reflecting on death as a part of our, what gives our life a sense of meaning and helps us weigh our choices, to this thing where the very idea of it causes a sense of dread and causes a sense of aversion. Um, reflecting on life's meaning has been shown by a, uh, an array. I actually wrote down a whole list of psychological studies from strange and strange as coherence, making spiritual thoughts coping and sense of coherence and patience Making Sense by Onsworth and Chambers, uh, Existential Well-Being and Patience by Cavers and Hacking, Existential Well-Being and Meaning Making, Onsworth and Nash, blah, blah, blah. These are all these books that are, and clinical studies that show that it's actually not a stressor to reflect on one's mortality. It's actually uh, re relieves stress and gives a sense of coherence and a sense of uh, overall meaning to life. It adds coherence. And it actually has been shown in cases to even, rather than trigger depression, it actually has been shown to alleviate. Because when somebody simply remembers one's mortality, then the natural effect is 
to reflect on what gives, what if we were facing a dire diagnosis or on our deathbed, what would we look back on our life with, with a sense of fondness and a sense of pride? And there are all these books, Lessons from the Dying, etc., that have actually interviewed uh, terminal patients. And there's a couple of themes that come up. Um, and certainly from the hospice center, I've heard these <coughs> themes over and over again. One is the importance of living in the present, obviously, not getting caught up constantly in uh, worrying about what's going to happen in the future or uh, slights or painful interactions of the past. And ability, it's important to process emotions about past events that are painful, but it's also important to attend to one's life uh, as it as right now being the most important uh, experience to attend to. Another uh, dominant theme is connecting with loved ones. Uh, very few people go look back on their lives and said, you know, thank God I worked you know, 60 hours a week or on weekends. Thank God I got that raise, that promotion. Thank uh, very few people. Even uh, uh, feel an enormous amount of gratitude for many of the accomplishments that at the time feel kind of important. But what we do recollect when... Um, we lose someone or when we are confronted with mortality is the times we got to spend with people that we care about deeply that give us a sense of warmth. Um, we tend, uh, Lessons from the Dying talks about the importance uh, that people feel about in being authentic and how they wish that they had never just been people pleasers and said the nice things, that they wished that they had been more true and expressed themselves as the way they felt, not harmfully, but were more revealing of, the, of their core emotions. And of course, as we noted in the first meditation, altruism. So as a summary, um, to... If we fail to reflect on death, then we fail to prioritize our own lives. Because it's that very uh, awareness of, our, um, of how fleeting it is and how um, the recollection of what really, when we look back at our lives as we lived it so far, that gives us a compass to what actually is meaningful and it's the greatest liberator from being caught up in an authentic uh, activities that make us, that give, provide a false sense of security. When 9-11 happened, which was one of the, along with sobriety, a very, very important event in my life in terms of the amount of change it resulted in. It was after that and seeing that and uh, the aftermath, I had a, an enormous breakdown crisis of faith. Every, I just, 
everything I was doing, I was at the time working uh, in advertising, creating art and writing copy. And it was a fairly lucrative career in the sense that, you know, we were living comfortably and uh, it was a safe career. Uh, and, uh, but in the direct aftermath of 9-11, I literally, without any exaggeration, after it could not go into work and have any sense of what I was doing there. It suddenly the entire thing just felt like a sick joke. Like uh, knowing that I had witnessed thousands of people dying, people who had just gone to work that day, expecting that day to be no different than any other, and reflecting on that as a as a real underlying truth of existence made all of my endeavors meaningless. I literally would go into work and it just felt like a hollow exercise and meaninglessness. So um, I, that's what pushed me into essentially winding up here in front of you doing whatever it is I do. But the spiritual counseling, the teaching has given my life meaning and purpose. And when I do this meditation now, I feel good because I know that I've prioritized my life in a way that uh, whenever it comes to an end, I will feel good about this choice and what I've spent my last 15 years doing. So we're now going to do the Marana Sati meditation. Sati means mindfulness of death. Silanusati, which we did just a little while ago, mindfulness of one's integrity. When we did the ideal parent, it was based on Deva Nusati, which was mindfulness of angelic or caring qualities. And experiences. So closing the eyes, and there's a lot of different ways the Buddha taught Marana Sati in the first foundation of mindfulness. He starts out by suggesting considering the body to be a bag of parts and that each, any of these parts, if they start working, the, the entire thing can go rotten. Just how fragile this body is, how it requires such a delicate balance from hormones and enzymes and uh, 
the constituents of allow us to have blood and white and red blood cells and lymph nodes and neurotransmitters, even the slightest imbalances can cause significant ramifications in the reflections of death suttas the Buddha asks that people repeat a phrase similar to I am subject to old age in their minds I am subject to illness I am subject to death I will be separated from all that is dear to me and all that will be left are the results of my actions. Nothing is owned. Those are the five daily recollections of Maranasati. I'm subject to aging, to sickness, to death. I will be separated from all that is dear to me and all that will be left are the results of my actions. And in another teaching, the phrase, this breath could be my last. This body will one day be a corpse. This breath will one day come to an end. This body will one day be a corpse. One day this body will breathe no more and it will be a corpse. So primed by these words, if you look back on your life, ask, and you were asked the question, have you lived the life that you wanted to live? Have you lived the life that you wanted to live? Have you, in the time that you've had, have you acted in accordance with those principles we connected with in the first meditation, those endeavors that give you a sense of integrity, well-being,
Have I lived the life I wanted to live? Have I used my time wisely? Have I balanced work with friendships, love, creativity, Have I prioritized the endeavors that make me feel a sense of well-being, not just the endeavors that the world tells me will lead to a little bit of safety, the seeking of approval all the time, or financial security, or accomplishment, or... Have I really established balance? Looking back on my life, when was I happiest? What times? For some it could be traveling or going on a retreat or gatherings with a family or pursuing their art. When was I happiest? Finally, having done this reflection so far, which responsibilities are still important and which are not? What obligations or concerns should I consider letting go of? as they don't bring me any sense of real purpose or meaning, in which possibilities have I underemphasized that I need to focus on more.
Now see if you can make a note to yourself. This is probably one of the most important of the Buddha's recollections. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes.